So turn with me in your copy of God's Word. We're going to be in Philippians, continuing in Philippians, um, picking up kind of part two of a sermon. And so I'm going to read again from chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 18. Um, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, as we do come to you, we ask that you would open our eyes to see, to hear what you have to say to your church this morning. Lord, may your spirit empower and strengthen me to proclaim your word with truth and clarity. May all of our ears and our hearts be open and receptive. And would you transform us by the power of your Spirit through the hearing of your word by faith. We pray this for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Do you ever feel dissatisfied? Now, I know that answer. It's it's yes, Uh, absolutely. We feel it with ourselves, with the environment that we live in, but in some cases, it feels like in some ways this question is moving not so much from do you ever feel dissatisfied, but do you ever feel satisfied at all? You know, you combine advertising uh, that is thrown at us day after day, telling us that what we have is not good enough and only the, the new thing will make us happy, or television and movies that often portray a very idealized life, and you couple that with social media that often portrays that, um, that curated outer self that's put before us when we know what our inner self is like, and it's not so curated, is it? And as usual, I could, I could go on and on here, but I actually don't want to depress us this morning. Um, so the, the, the point is that we live in an environment that I think oozes dissatisfaction. We live in a world that oozes that. And it's easy to to fall into that mindset and that attitude. And the problem with all of it, um, at least part of the problem, is it, it fights against faithful living for the glory of God. And it fights against our satisfaction and our rest and our delight in who God is. But all those are exactly what we are called to. And as we looked at last week, we're called to a continual and a hopeful obedience, to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing, and this is our our hope, 
that it is God who is at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. We're here to pursue a long obedience that, that presses forward after the same goal day after day. And so this morning we continue in this long obedience. Last week we looked at, the, at those two aspects, and now as we move into verses 14 through 18, we're going to see other aspects of this long obedience. We're going to see that it's childlike obedience, and it's also sacrificial obedience. Now my prayer is that not only will we hear and grasp the truth that Paul sets before us this morning, but that it will take root that the Spirit of God will work greater conformity in our lives to Christ. That we will see greater conformity, greater rest, greater desire, greater satisfaction in Him. So verse 14 again, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, when I say childlike obedience... I'm not referring to just children in general at this point in time. What I'm referring to here is childlike in the sense of we are children of God. Those who have placed their faith in Christ, who have repented and believed, we are children of God. And so that is the childlikeness of obedience that I'm talking about here. I'm referring to those who have been brought from death to life and been adopted. This is the obedience of one who has been called and changed by Christ. We are to obey as children of God. We're to reflect that truth. But the, the, the question that, then that Paul gives, and Paul puts forth that we have to ask is, what's the specific nature of the obedience to which he commands us? He says, do all things. Now, in some sense, this is specific by being absolutely universal in scope. It's an all-encompassing command. There's, there's nothing that this does not touch. Paul does not give us a list of areas where it applies so that you can check off a list and say, you know, hey, I did, I did 80%. I'm doing pretty good. It's do all things. Consider 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So what is it, though, that we are specifically to have present or absent, as is the case in this command, in all things? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, there is a bit of a historical background to these words. Paul is drawing from the history of and, and the experience of the people of God, of the Israelites. Exodus 15, following the, the plagues and, and the exodus out of Egypt, the text tells us in verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Then just a few verses later in chapter 16, 
we read, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have di- had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out in this wilderness to kill us and, and this whole assembly with hunger. I think there might be a little revisionist history going on by the Israelites at that point in time, but you also hear they're, they're whining, they're grumbling, and they're complaining. And then we skip down to verse 8. And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling against him, what are, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So Israel, saved by the Lord in miraculous and spectacular ways, grumbles against Moses, but Moses says, who are we? You're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against the Lord who brought you out of slavery in Egypt, who saved you by a mighty hand, who parted the Red Sea, and you watched your enemies drown. And now you're recoloring and re, re, uh, retelling history to say you had it great in Egypt. Paul wrote about this situation, not only in this letter here as he alluded to it, but when he wrote to the Corinthian church. And he informed us that the, the Israelites serve as an example for us. They serve as one to warn us, to help us see the danger of giving into that temptation to grumble. And really what he says is when you get down to the root of the grumbling, what leads to that grumbling is idolatry. It's idolatry. It's a focus on ourself and everything we want and need. It's putting us at the center of the universe. And really, at the, at the heart, idolatry is, is, is saying that, that it's this thing, not God, that is my ultimate good. We take a good thing and we say it's the ultimate thing. And if you lose that, or that, that thing that you've elevated to the place of God lets you down, which I guarantee you, it will let you down, you grumble, you complain. The Israelites had idols in their hearts. Not, not all of them did they physically bow down to, but they did that as well. They likely had idol of safety, of ease, of, of the familiar, of the comfortable, even though it wasn't that comfortable, of maybe their own homes and a place to lay their head. And they cared about that at least in the moment. That's what they valued more than trusting and obeying God who had just led them out of slavery, out of bondage. Now let's dig a little bit deeper into grumbling. Paul Tripp, who I think is very insightful in many ways, he wrote, grumbling has to do with the emotional side of complaint. The English translation is onomatopoeic if I said that correctly, meaning that the word audibly represents its definition. You know, just say grumble, and it sounds like you're grumbling. So that's what that means. So grumbling says, I deserve better. 
When we grumble, we insert ourselves into the center of our universe and make life all about us. When we don't get what we want, immediately when we want it and precisely how we want it, we grumble. It's the audible representation of a heart captured by the claustrophobic kingdom of self. Is that not a perfect line? the audible representation of a heart captured by the claustrophobic kingdom of self. And we utter those three dangerous words, I deserve better. And when we cry out those words, whether we do it out loud or it's just screaming in our heart, We are placing ourselves above everything else, and we're looking to our needs first. We're doing the opposite of what Paul had just commanded us a few verses earlier. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And on top of that, folks, there is no grumble. There is no complaint, whether it's just grumbled in the heart or against another person that isn't at its root a grumbling against God. You may think you're just complaining about your neighbor because they, you know, they don't mow their yard enough or whatever it may be. You're actually complaining against God. And I think you and I most assuredly see this grumbling in our own lives. In the whispering complaints, or maybe not whispered so much, maybe in the loud complaints, and the negative comments about others behind their backs to other people. And complaining about the weather, boy, we can do that really well in Ohio, can't we? Because just, but really, you don't have to complain because you know that it'll change by later afternoon or from day to day. Or the traffic. Or the food in the refrigerator. How many of you have opened up the refrigerator and it's basically full and your response is, we got nothing to eat. I've never heard that, but um, I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. We grumble about a lot of things, and it's so destructive on so many levels. Just, it eats at your heart, at relationships with others, at the health of the community as a whole. I remember when uh, Aaron and I were in Charlotte, we were in a small group with a, uh, with a number of people, and there was a couple, an older couple, Ken and Ruth, sweet couple. And somebody asked them, said, what is the secret to your marriage? They've been married for years. Adult kids, just, they, they still had the twinkle in their eye. And the response, without hesitation, was, we promised, we covenanted, never to grumble a negative word about the other person. Ever. And you know what? I believe them. I'm pretty sure that's true because you could see it in their, in their lives, and that is taking this command seriously. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many have been able to keep that command. Well, maybe I could because you're all keeping your hands down. So um, that would work. But how do you and I obey this command in our everyday lives? Where, where, where do you find yourself prone to grumbling, prone to that thought, that dangerous thought of, I deserve better?
And just to not jump off this too quickly here, let me drive it home a bit more. You know, why is this such a bad thing? Well, stuff that I've talked about, but also it leads and it's, it is a, um, it, it feeds and it's a, a reflection of our discontentment. Jeremiah Burroughs, old Puritan, has one of the best definitions of contentment I've ever read. It's this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me just read that again. It's that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. The content person, the content person trusts in God, delights in His providence. Discontentment is, is a flashing red light indicating that we are not trusting God and that we think He hasn't done things well enough and He actually still owes us. He's not done enough because I deserve better. Grumbling is one of the biggest signs that we are discontent, that we are idolaters. And secondly, and along with it, and I really alluded to it already, grumbling is accusing God of not being the God He has shown Himself to be. And folks, that's rebellion and it's sin. We accuse God of not being holy, not being just, not being good, not being wise, not caring for His children when we grumble and complain about everything. All right, let's, let's move on to the next one. So that's just the do all things without grumbling. So we're only five words into this. So, and disputing. Trip again says, disputing simply says, I know better. So we have, I deserve better. Now it's, I know better. If I were ruling my world, I would do X, Y, and Z differently. Again, this is another swipe at the sovereignty of God. It's questioning the wisdom of God. We, we see it in our quarreling and debating, our arguing in a way that is divisive and damaging, and this applies in all areas of our lives. Again, do all things. But specifically, I think Paul is concerned about the unity of God's people. That, I believe that was the immediate concern he had. He was desirous of unity within the church. So let me draw this out. Do you grumble against and dispute the leadership of the church? Not saying you have to agree with everything, okay? I'm not at all saying that. None of us are perfect. But how do you go about disagreeing? Do you pray for and give thanks for this church and for the people in it and the people God has called to oversee it? Or do you always second guess what's done and think that you could have done X, Y, and Z so much better? not just in the church. How about in your marriage, in family, in the workplace? Are you constantly disputing everything? Now listen, in all of this, Paul is concerned with heartfelt obedience. 
He doesn't just want to show. Just because people haven't maybe come and complained out loud to the leadership doesn't mean you're not disputing in your own heart. I'm not, and I'm not saying anybody has. I haven't noticed. I'm just, this is what the text is saying. I'm called to draw it out. So don't think I have anybody in mind in this. This is not a subtweet or, or whatever they call it. You know, I'm not trying to hit people here. But God doesn't want to show. He isn't happy with us merely keeping our mouths shut when our heart is bitter and angry. True obedience cannot be external compliance alone. He does not want obedience like that of the obstinate child who you have repeatedly told over and over again, sit down, sit down, please, sit down, please. And finally they sit down and then they grumble and they say, I may be sitting on the outside, but in the inside I'm still standing. That's not obedience. That's not trust. Rather, what Paul is calling us to is the heart of a child of God, one who trusts his Father, because that is who we are. We have been adopted. And consider the amazing privilege. Westminster Larger Catechism asks asks the question, what is adoption? This is the answer. Adoption is an act of the free grace of God. He wasn't compelled to do this. This is out of his love and his grace. It's an act of the free grace of God in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children. There's no one on the outside who's trusted and repented and believed. Have his name put upon them. The Spirit of His Son given to them. You have the Spirit of Christ in you, are under His fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all, all, not not just those in that side room, but all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God made heirs, heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. We stand, we will stand with Christ in glory because we are in, that is the privilege we have as children of God. That's the God who called us. How are we so prone to grumble and dispute? Paul wants us to live worthy, worthy of the name Christian, disciple of Christ, child of God, to understand it, to rejoice in it, to see it's good. And he goes on and he gives us further descriptions of the character that accompanies the child of God, the one who does not grumble or dispute. He says, that you may be blameless and innocent. Blameless. Well, that term regards to being, as it sounds, free from blame. Free from accusation, both in regard to God and with other people. There is nothing that gives occasion for scandal, no reason for people to have anything against you because your conduct is impeccable. 
you have a clear conscience because you know the way you live your life. And some of that, folks, is when you mess up, when you sin, you have a race to repentance. Because I didn't say if you sin. It's, it's when. It's not going to be perfection in this life. It's our direction. Where are we going? And we're also to be innocent. It's purity. It's sincerity. There's, there's no mixing with evil. There's no defilement from the world. This is where we can say, I want to be like Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel where he says, resolved that he would not defile himself. Resolve that you won't defile yourself with the evil of this world, with the world, the flesh, and Satan. One commentator wrote, just as on the one hand, the Christian is not to entertain a a carping criticism of others, so by the way we live, we are to remove all cause of just criticism against ourselves. Does it matter what others think of us? Certainly it does. For Paul makes us accountable for seeing that no one should have good cause to condemn us. And this applies equally to our hearts as they come under our own scrutiny. Do we have a good reputation with outsiders? And yet further, he says, without blemish. Now this concerns not so much how we appear before others, but how we appear before God. This is what we are called to, folks. Ephesians 1.4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And you know what? He will do it. He who began that good work will accomplish it. Jude 24, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. This is true of us by the graciousness of God. And what we are called to do in many ways is is work out in real life that we begin to resemble more and more what we are by grace. That our day-to-day living reflects the truth of what God has said and done for us. And folks, all of this is done in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The child of God should stand out from this generation, from this culture. When Peter Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he called the people to be saved from this crooked generation. It's always been this way. God's people have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, but still we live in that world. We live in the world where today we see the agenda of sexual perversity and the degrading of the holiness of marriage paraded in the streets and on our screens, where we have seen women more and more devalued through the demands of people who want their, quote, authentic selves and where we have phrases that are floating around in the media like birthing people. I'm sorry, those are called women and wives. 
And there are dishonest and shady dealings in business and politics and the media basically everywhere you go. Remember, I'm pretty sure it was J.I. Packer who said, the place of the children of God is in the world. It's like, it's like a ship in the sea. But when the sea gets into the ship, you've got problems. So our place is in the world, but we don't want the world into us. We're to stand out. We are, as God's children, folks, to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I think that image of shine as lights goes back to Daniel again, Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3, where it reads, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. See, that context of that vision that Daniel had was that those who shine are those who have been raised from death to everlasting life. And Paul sees this um, sees the fulfillment of this, at least partially, in the church, shining the gospel of Jesus, proclaiming it boldly in the midst of the world. And really, this echoes Jesus' very words. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And we could go back to Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. He'll give us to the people to shine as a light in the midst of the darkness. And he has that phrase, Paul has the phrase, holding fast to the word of life. Because I think he has two ideas behind that phrase. Because some of it is, uh, there's, there's a vagueness in the translation. And it could go one of two ways, and I think it really kind of goes both. One, there's the idea of mission with this. So not so much of holding fast, but holding forth the word of life. You to shine as lights of the world, holding forth the word of life, the word that brings life to the nations. How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone tells them? You know, we come, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So there's that aspect of holding forth, it's proclaiming. And then what I believe is, is probably the stronger point as you, as you see Paul moves into this next section, is that actually of holding fast to it. Hold steadfastly to that word that brings life without this word, without holding fast, without knowing this word, without trusting, without believing it. Folks, there's no chance at holding to Christian character. We had 
an intro class uh, for the church yesterday. One of the things that we talked about was that there's two ways that you can stand in relation to God's Word. You can stand in authority over it or be in submission under it. We have to be in submission under it because if you stand in authority over it, we start hearing phrases like, my truth and your truth, and my God wouldn't do that, and you impose your standards on God rather than the other way around. We have to hold fast to the word of life and let it guide us because it is a living and active word. One commentator just simply put, if the word of life is lost, the church will be like a black hole rather than a shining star in the world. If we lose it, we'll be like a black hole. That's childlike obedience. Then he calls us to sacrifice gives a reason for all that he's been writing, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So that. So that when the day of Christ arrives, Paul will be able to to boast in the Philippians, boast that that he didn't run or labor in vain, an image that he loves to use. That image of running and running hard and laboring and laboring hard. Paul gave his life. He gave his all for the gospel. And the believers that that he saw as a result of that proclamation of his holding forth the word of life in the world. He loved them. He labored for them. And his desire is to present them before the Lord as glorious evidence of his fruitful and faithful sacrifice. Let's look at first. 17, because he believes that 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 fruitful or that that sacrifice part is coming even more prominent. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So this, this picture here of Paul being poured out as a drink offering, there is some debate over it, but uh, you know, does it, does it refer to him believing that, his, that, that martyrdom was highly likely and maybe close at hand? Or does it simply refer to his, his labors and his suffering for the gospel? And I, I don't think there's a definitive way to go one way or the other, but if you look at the context in the letter and you go to someplace like 2 Timothy 4.6, I think this most likely refers to Paul understanding that he will die for the gospel. He's going to die as a minister of the gospel. He's going to die laboring and running to to present the the disciples, the people that he's seen come to know Christ before the Lord in glory. He's going to die in that labor. And you know what? It doesn't bother him at all. I don't know how many weeks ago it was. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is in my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. For me to live is Christ. 
But to die is gain. To die is joy. To die is rejoicing. Sacrifice that he is prepared to give, that he gives every day in his labor and running hard. It's joyous. Particularly as he counts it as as a crowning feature on the sacrificial obedience of the Philippians. Paul's concern has been for their conformity to Christ, their conformity to the one who humbled himself and obeyed even unto death. That's what he wants for them. He wants them as well to share in this joy of living fully for Christ and the joy of knowing that they could die for that labor. Cause them to rejoice with him. Paul's heart throughout his letters has been calling people to sacrifice and to conform to Christ. Probably many of you are familiar with Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by everything he has done for you as a believer. Think of what we read just about adoption. That's just one small part by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, holding fast to the word of life, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, unacceptable, and perfect. Paul calls us to live a life of imitation of our Savior. Live a life in conformity with the one that he he just laid out in beauty and glory, this Christ Him, the one who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to, but who gave Himself. Folks, we can give it all because Christ gave it all. We can live in holiness because Christ lived perfectly holy. He took the punishment we deserve upon himself. We can look to others' needs because Christ did. We can do all of this because as believers, the Spirit of God is put upon us and we are in union with our Savior. In many ways, what Paul has called us to is echoed in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, like these chapters, 12, first two verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily entangles, the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
How? How do we do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, the, the joy of his sacrifice, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is so good. It calls us to so much. May we be a people who don't give in to the air, to the environment of dissatisfaction in this world. Be a people who look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, who for joy endured. Lord, we know that we have difficult times in our lives. We know things are not hunky-dory all the time. It's not smooth sailing. But your fatherly care and dispensations are there for us, your children. And so may we live in grace and in faith, trusting you, resting in all that you are. Lord, for your glory, for our good, for our blamelessness and innocence, our, our without blemishness in the sight of others, for, for, for your glory and for our good and joy in all things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.